this is Listeners, welcome to another episode of uh, Warped Celluloid. I'm your host, Jack Rourke, with my co-host, as per usual. Chandler Williams. How's you get doing, Chandler? How's it going? I'm good, Jack. You know, doing good. What about you? How's things on your end of the universe? Because like, I don't think you talk a lot on this show. It's usually me. So I'm trying um, to be more united. They're, uh, they're, they're fine, you know? Trying to stay busy with this whole uh, virus um, and not get too bored just here by myself. I've been uh, uh, pretty occupied with homework also. Same, honestly. I've been doing actually a fairly decent job of keeping busy, honestly. So, so yeah, what are we going to be talking about today? We'll be talking about Until the End of the World. <laughs> a woman on the run from a nightmare. A man in pursuit of a dream. You have sad eyes. <laughs> I'm not a sad man, though. Would you give me a lift? Together, they are about to embark on the ultimate journey. There's a guy looking for you. He's got a gun. Yeah, I know. I just seem to attract criminals. Hey, I'm not a criminal. A journey that will take them to the ends of the earth. The camera was developed in their time with government funds. He's wanted. And last, I am neither a spy nor a jewel thief. What are you then? Until the end of the world. I really like you. That's why I'm having so much trouble getting it through my skull that you're an agent. I was trying to save your life. Who knows who is in on this deal? This is where computer programming ends and real detective work begins. Technology is the same. He takes his brain signals and turns them into pictures on the screen. What's he doing? He's trying to record his own dreams. I trusted him. Sure, and then he rubbed you. You love him? Yes, I do. I hope he loves you. It's the end of the world. I first saw this movie, I want to say two weeks ago, and it was really, really good. First half was incredible. Second half, we'll discuss it. I was about to say, I think I might end up agreeing with you on that. Did you, um, you watched it on the Criterion channel, right? Yep. Were the the two parts uh, connected? Yep, yep, it was all one cut. It was all one Okay, well... I have the DVD, and so mine, 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 the two parts are separate DVDs. Oh, really? Yeah, so that really divides yeah, things. Yeah. Remember, uh, that reminds me of the late 90s when some games were so long that they had to be on two discs. Like, I think Final Fantasy VII was that way for the original PlayStation. Yeah, yeah. PS2, I'm, I'm not good with my gaming history. Anyway, that, this movie is interesting for a number of reasons. And for starters, let's talk about the story. Right. It's the story of uh, William Hurt and, um, I'm trying to remember her name, uh, Solvig Domartine, I believe is how you say her name. Mm-hmm. Right. It's about, about two strangers who dr- travel literally across the world the world to try and find a device that records mem- or memories and lets you relive them. That's the closest thing I can or come to summing it up in a high-concept way. Because way, there is a lot of movie packed into this movie, folks. Yes, there is. What's the runtime again? Almost five hours. Four hours and 47 minutes, to be precise. You know what's funny is that's not even the longest version of the movie. Apparently, the ori- 
let's go through this really quick because this movie is interesting for a lot of reasons, as it is usually for the case for these movies on the podcast. The original cut of this ran for 20 hours. Wow. Almost an entire day. <laughs> Which, granted, I I make that sound a little sensationalist, but a lot of work, you know, work prints and rough cuts for movies can run really, really long. Like, I think the one for 2049 was, I don't know, four hours long. I would watch that. I'm not going to lie, I would too, no, despite knowing how unpolished it is. Unpolished. Because that's inherent. That's just inherent to rough cut cuts in that kind of process. Is because it's literally just putting all the footage together in a way that's... And then you, I mean, further edits are just fine-tuning. You know what I mean? Do you think any of this movie could be cut? Well, I can kind of answer that because I, uh, I tried watching it way tonight, last night because I found the original theatrical cut on YouTube. And then I turned it off after six minutes because I could already tell, wow, this thing just does not work when you cut out a lot. Because they try, let me just use one example. The, the opening t- 20 minutes or of her going to the party and just or in travel, or in going through traffic and kind of going through her day, that's or in really or in slow, really meandering, but good kind of slow and meandering. That gives you a sense of pace in the world. world it's beautiful, be yeah. That's truncated to six minutes in the actual movie. In the original cut, at least. Wow. Yeah. By the way, thank God Criterion released this because this hasn't had a DVD release since, um, I think, the late 90s. And I can't find it on streaming literally anywhere outside of... Sponsored by Criterion. Blu-ray. Because this is very much worth your time, but save it for a rainy afternoon. Yes, yes. I well, going back to Blade Runner for a moment, there are almost as many cuts as there of this as they are of Blade Runner. We have the US theatrical code cut or the Reader's Digest version according to Vim Vendors. That runs at a solid uh, two hours thirty-eight minutes. Then we have the European cut, which runs at a scant two hours and fifty-nine minutes, so about as long as the first Lord of the Rings. Jap- the Japanese cut, which runs at three hours and fifty-nine minutes. The tr- the trilogy cut, I haven't been able to find a reason why it's called that. It uh, runs four hours and forty minutes, and uh, the director's cut, which runs at four hours forty-eight. Yeah. So they get a little exponentially longer. I'm not sure if I can track down any of the other one- ones, but I'd be curious to see them. Be curious. To see yeah same yeah I mean, there's also another thing about this movie uh this thing was not very success- also like blade runner this was not particularly successful when it came out although this is less so because at least blade runner made its budget back time did this movie not make its budget back oh god no right no the, at least according to wikipedia so who knows what their source was the original production budget was 23 million that plus however much they must have spent in marketing which might have been a lot considering how big the soundtrack was, which we will get back to that in just a moment, don't worry. Production budget of $23 million, box office $752,856. Wow. This was this was also Warner Brothers' big Christmas Day release for 1991, so I admire them for taking such a big swing, but I'm not sure if it paid off in the short term. Probably played Especially off the for the um, reduced length. Yeah. I was going to say, though, the final product... Is definitely worth every penny they spent because this thing, it feels big. Oh, so big. I mean, is that they, it's not, if the title is Until the End of the World, they mean Until the End of the World because it's shot in San Francisco, Australia, Berlin, Russia, Portugal, Tokyo, France, and, and of course, Venice, Italy. Yep. Although most of it, I mean, this, almost the entire second half is set during Australia, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, uh, yes. It is quite gorgeous, too. Too, which uh, yeah, beautiful cinematography which uh we, someone who we talked about before on this podcast uh one robbie mueller he shot repo man he also shot dead man for jim jarmusch he's actually worked a lot with jim jarmusch oh nice he is uh one of the all-time great cinematographers and i think this or i think this might be some of his uh, best work speaking of the director or of uh, interesting best work i believe this might be vim vendor's best film this is the only Vim Vendors film I've seen, actually. I think I've only seen two others. I've only seen Paris, Texas, and Wings of Desire, which, speaking of beautiful cinematography, that shot of just the dude with the angel wings standing over the city is one of the most evocative, elegiac, dare I say, images I've ever seen. It is genuinely a beautiful, sad little, mo- little movie. Also on Criterion. Three, two, one, and the usual joke. Sponsored by Sponsored Criterion. Sponsored by Criterion. <laughs> 
<laughs> I swear we're gonna get that print on t-shirts if I understand uh, yes. all right. <laughs> anyway. Um going over some of the notes, uh I I I love the criterion like opening titles. Really? Um like the uh the the title menu. Oh, I, I haven't seen it yet. I I want to get the Blu-ray so bad running bad now. Because I wanted it, to I wanted to watch it before I buy it, you know, because I don't do a lot of blind buys. I rarely for like do. The Lord of the Rings trilogy. Yeah, uh, yeah. For Lord of the Rings trilogy and uh, Vertigo. I think that in Death Race 2000, but it was like 60. It was the cost of an iTunes single, and I found a VHS of it in a Goodwill, so I figured why not. Oh, uh, nice. But I feel like the criteria on opening titles, they do a great job of establishing the tone of yeah. each film. And um, this one, it, it, it played one of the songs from the soundtrack, and it was yeah. it, it was great. All right, this is one of my favorite parts of this. And, okay, let's see here. I, oh, I took a lot of notes for this. I think I've taken the most notes of this I have for any movie because I got like two and a half pages full. Oh, nice. So, anyway, let's talk about the soundtrack. It includes artists such as U2, The Talking Heads, Elvis Costello, R.E.M., Lou Reed, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, Peter Gabriel, Elvis Costello. I think I already said it was good. Elvis Presley and uh, Can, and a lot more. Some of my favorites. Yep. Seriously, that U2 title song, um, I'm just going to probably drop that in once it is, but it is. It's popular for a very, very good reason. Last time we met was a low-lit room. We was close together as a bride and groom. We ate the food, we drank the wine. Everybody having a good time Except you You were talking about the end of the world I took the money I spent to drink You miss too much these days If you stop to think I think that's the best part of the movie, honestly, the soundtrack. <laughs> You know, it's funny is I remember one of the reasons it is so long was when I was doing research for this is because Vim Vendors wanted to have an excuse to put a lot because he got a lot of people to do good music for this. He's like, I want to use it's like, this is all so good. I want to use all of it. Yeah. Can yeah. I, I actually bought the soundtrack on vinyl. Really? Yes. I'm ex- I'd love to hear that. Right, yeah. Uh, they're uh, yellow vinyl. Ooh, nice. Was it like a reprint or was this an original pressing? Uh, I think it's a reprint. Uh, I will keep that in mind. Send me the link to that sometime. Uh, yeah, totally. I mean, I know we've been going on about the length, the length, and that's both a good and bad thing in some cases. Cases, but again, we'll get to it later. This reminds me of I bring up Blade Runner also because it reminds me of a lot of its sequel, Blade Runner twenty forty nine, in terms of length. Because one of the complaints I heard about that when it came out was is because this could, this story could be told in so much shorter time, but that's kind of missing the point. It's supposed or to take it in, let it, or let the world breathe. Or breathe, get a sense of the or of the scale of everything. You're supposed to flow along with the characters too. Yeah, but it's supposed to, it's supposed to stop one of those stop and smell the roses thing where you're just either you're exactly. going to be along with the ride for this or you're just it's just going to go off you like Teflon, slide off. Which I get it. This is a hard movie to love. It is. Different. It it gets progressively more goofy, which I don't like. Goofy is an uh, kind of. I argue that the first half is a lot. You know what's funny is. The second half is the more story focused part, but the first, or, but the first half is better paced. That makes sense. Exactly. Because I'm not gonna I, lie, I I watched this really late at night, or at night, because I think I put it on eight o'clock, and then it ended at like one in the morning, or in the morning. And uh, by the time we got to the second half, and it got to some of the more tangents, I was like, okay, I'm liking this, but let's kind of speed this along. Yeah, yeah. This is, this is still a wonderful movie, but it's still pro- got its problems. I felt like he was trying to tell two separate stories, like trying to make two different movies, but combining yeah. them. That reminds me, um, the big. Uh, there's also another comparison I was thinking of. It's uh, Once Upon a Time in America. Not so much story, except for well, in scope, obviously. In that it got really truncated for a theatrical release, but the only version of it that should be watched is the theater is the D- one that exists on DVD right now. Uh, which is I'll like check it out. Hour long. It's uh the last film made by Sergio Leone. One of the oh, interesting the guy who. Or the guy who perfected the spaghetti western. Yeah, but, again, but I think it was a sh- cut down to two and a half hours for theaters, but or, but it, the full cut is about as long as this is. But I felt like he was trying to tell two separate stories, like the um, you know, abroad 
you know, love interest with a stranger, and then the whole dream machine sci-fi story. I and didn't I see that. I think the combination got kind of messy. Yeah, I think I think there could have been a little bit more of an overlap or a lab like maybe we or wean us onto it. Either that or cut it into two separate films. Exactly. Yeah. Actually I wonder what a two parter whether this would look like. Or like like Kill Bill Volume One and Two. Like Yeah. Like, Tarantino did intend that as a as a one as in one fi- long film, if I'm not mistaken. Let's see here. You know what's funny is a lot a lot of the brainstorm stuff well a lot of the uh, whole ring head ring cosmic head trip uh, relive memory part. It reminds me of what's been done in other movies before and after. After and I think this does it actually fairly well. There's a line in the film that actually pretty much sums up the theme perfectly: the disease of images. Mmm, nice. How or how a lo- how so- how a pe- how a memory of something can become so alluring to you that it kind of p- or cripples you or you and doesn't allow you to function. Being stuck, the literal embodiment of being stuck in the past. I find something about that actually really interesting, and I don't think a lot of movies about VR or this kind of thing touch on that. I I honestly thought of like people being glued to their phones when um the two protagonists were like they could they could not stop looking at their uh their dreams like on the on the little devices. Yeah, I, oh, I thought yeah. there's a lot of cell phone imagery throughout yeah. this film. What's funny is this film kind of predicts FaceTime in a way, although exactly yeah. It's weird that every sci-fi movie that tries to do video calls always thinks we're gonna do them in boosts or something, or something. But really, it's just something we we do on our phone, like. Wow! If only you guys had a crystal ball. <laughs> yeah. Like, then again, I guess the idea of put, fitting that kind of tech into something they can fit in our pockets must have seemed genuinely alien to them at the time. Yeah, just too far, too far advanced. Yeah, I mean, I still I give them credit for even trying though, because there's actually a lot of this. Like, maybe the specific vision is a little dated, but the actual tech is fairly on point. I agree. A little ahead of its time. But the way something like Total Recall it is, in that the aesthetically it's a little dated, but the idea is right up, is right on the money. The yes, yes. Although I do think aesthetically this is kind of cooler. Yeah. Like, like those yeah. little car, like the little TVs that have the navigation thing in the cars. Those look cool. Like the credit cards. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, they use credit cards. They're basically like or like short down floppy disks. But that's what that's just what I assumed it was, or some sort of ID. I thought it was like a um a more compact version of like a CD. Yeah, it's still whatever it is. It's interesting to look at. It's definitely a distinct visual. It's very. Dis- All of the uh, tech is very distinct throughout this film. Yeah. Oh yeah. Which I think one of the things is I remember uh, in my intro to dramatic writing class I took last quarter. Ever we got kept getting a beat into our heads that we have to introduce everything by the first fifteen minute or in minutes that t- in other words it's kind of the enemy of slow pacing, which. I agree for most films, but I like having exceptions like this. Or in this that allow you just to or sit back, or back and really get a sense of everything. Take it all in. Stop and smell the roses and such. And you, you could feel the production design oh God. for each location. How how was this not a huge Oscar film that year? Or that year because this thing is next level good. Or in terms, not only in terms of the music, but in terms of production design, in terms of the acting, in terms of the right, or in the writing. It's it held the cinematography. Or anything we already mentioned, and and it's not just because oh it's pretty it's that it actually does really do a really good job communicating feel, feelings. It gives it re- there's a lot of good wide shots in the movie. It really really gives you a good sense of scope, scope. And telling the story just through visuals also. Yeah, I mean there's a good amount of dial or log and in some parts there's a lot of dial or log. Some parts that I've you know the Sam Neill's voiceover narration throughout this. Yes. Part of me, for the first half of this, I was wondering, okay, is this a studio note? Is because because the or in, um what's the producers were a little worried about audiences. I mean, I don't blame them, but also, but also this is fairly easy to follow. So I'm wondering, oh, and then and then a certain reveal happens later on in the film that his character is on a novel based on this. Like, oh, that makes complete sense. Oh, yeah, it does. Kind of gives a little sort of fantastical quality, a uh, a je ne sais quoi. Martin <laughs> Wayne. I'd also argue this is Vim Vender's most mainstream film, and not just because this was a Warner Bro- a big budget Warner Bros. movie that came out on Christmas Day of all things, but also because aside from its length, it's fairly easy to get into. I'd say. Yeah, as long also, as you're patient with it. Oh yeah, of course. 
I mean, more so than something like Paris, Texas, which is a very, is a very slow film. It's obviously a lot shorter, but it's also a lot quieter, a lot more melancholic. melancholic I still need to see it. Yeah, it deals with some things that are going to hit close to home with a lot of people. So, yeah, that's one of those things. Like, I'd recommend it, but only if you feel like you're ready for it emotionally. I mean, it's an emotional trip. Yep, very, very much like this. I mean, it makes sense that they got the same filmmaker behind them. The art in the background of this film oh, yeah. is beautiful. Very intentional. Speaking of the soundtrack and uh, talking about, I think they used the music video for sex and violence in the opening party scene. Oh, yeah, they do. Head floating around on the TV. That reminds me, we got to talk about True Story sometime on here. That'd be that'd be a great episode. I do love that scene, um, like the opening party scene, where she's just walking through it and they're still partying and there's like, the little kids there. Uh, and like, oh, God, he talks like he's in his 30s. Which yeah. <laughs> is a weird little detail. I think, by the way, that's one of the things they cut out in the theatrical cut. I like that detail. Um, and he's like, like playing like, with like the he's FaceTiming his dad on like this um, robot. I think he plays a game one of those old Game Boys from the early nineties too. Yeah. That's that's kinda cool. One of the things you know what's weird? I think there's another comparison I'm gonna make and I hate playing this because I like treating a movie on its own terms, its own unique thing. The first half of this movie hit me like I'd imagine Lost in Translation hits a lot of people. Yes, yes, I, I, I can see that. I love Lost in Translation. I'm, I think it's pretty good. I, I don't know, maybe a rewatch will help, but I, but I liked it, but I felt like something, part of it left me cold. I'm, yeah, it just didn't hit you like it hits other people. I'm not saying that, I don't, no, here's the thing, I get, I mean, get it, this is a movie, but I'm like, maybe, I don't know, maybe I just, I mean, it wasn't the right mood. Because I did destroy it yeah. on the whim one night. Yeah, yeah. The the first half of this film, I really, really love. Yep. And then the second I, half, it drops off considerably for me. I, I don't think it's that bad. I think it's that, that the second... It's weird to me that the theatrical cut cuts so much from the, the first half. Because I feel like the second half is the stuff where you need to cut things. Yes, I agree. I agree. Because it doesn't add, add a lot thematic. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's still story there. Or in there, but some of it, there's a little too much story. Like, if this thing was a novel, it'd be like, I don't know, 700, 800 pages. If that, possibly longer. Yep. It feels like that very long, winding narrative. Yeah. The second half just, the two halves just didn't feel cohesive. I, I argue they're cohesive, or cohesive, but they could have, or they could have been a little, just a little more fine tuning. Yes, exactly. Well, not too much. Because I also, Here's the thing. I want to find a middle ground between letting a filmmaker or do what they want, but I also want want to have it reined in to be reasonable. Because sometimes, sometimes you get or you get situations like Apocalypse Now. Other times you get one from the heart. Or the prequel trilogy. Oh boy. Oh boy. Or... Which I actually saw on TV. Um, Phantom really? Menace. Yeah. Okay. I was gonna say I rewatched all of them before watching Rise of Skywalker, and uh... oh boy. <laughs> they aged well, or, I mean, I don't think they're or, they deserve as much hatred as they've gotten over the year. years. No, I I agree. It, like making a director apologize for a movie—that's fucking uncalled for, man. Like apolo- Okay, forget. Like, it's one thing to like it and one thing to not like it, but making them outright apologize for it, like they did the same shit with uh, Joel Schumacher on the Batman movie. Oh, that's really? that's unnecessary. Like, guys, let's let's tone it down a little. A little like something. Anyway, back to the matter of hand up. Reminds me, we talked about Zardoz, which is another one of these directorial visions gone kind of semi wrong. That reminds me, uh, I watched a couple weeks ago. I watched the uh, live stream that Zack Snyder did for uh, he did a comment, a live commentary for Batman versus Superman, and uh, he confirmed something that I kind of had a sneaking suspicion of. He is a massive John Borman fan. I could see that because uh, Excalibur was a very, very big influence on Batman versus Superman. I'm like, you know what? It was. If you can, I think it's available on YouTube and the or in the actual recording. It's a really interesting commentary. He, like you get to see a storyboard, you actually get to think of some of the inspiration, have some personal details. It's actually like really what's the insightful. It's actually. Would you say you're a Zack Snyder fan overall? Yeah, definitely. I think I think the guy gets way too much shit from people, honestly. I mean, yeah, I like, really, really love too, Watchmen. Like what I do too, and like. The thing is, people say that missed the point of you know the book. Or the book, I couldn't disagree more. I think it's more him recognizing I can't get all of this on screen perfectly, so I might as well do do my own interpretation. It's faithful to a point. What what Alan Moore and uh, Dave Gibbons did for comic books, Zack Snyder did for superhero movies. And that makes really? 
which I'd argue instead of referencing classical Greek myths with the Osman names com costume in the comics, he references the Schumacher Batman films in the costume. Costume and also mimics the aesthetics, the amount of violent or in violence, the way in the story plays out. The I think it's there. I love Zack Snyder, but I do think there's one issue with his first filmmaking is that his characters have a tendency to speechify. This is the problem with the script. It's the way they're the actors are directed to say the lines, which or something about it does feel off. I don't at times. Sometimes it works. No, I could see that. I could see that. Yeah, speech. I mean, like a lot of that happens in Watchmen, but I think it's kind of intentional because it's supposed to feel kind of grandiose. Yeah, yeah, which it does. It yep. it succeeds at. Like, I wonder if this would have gotten a better reception if it had come out like ten years later. And I would say worse, honestly. Really? Because yeah. Because of the... What makes you say that? Um, this film just feels so late eighties, early nineties. Oh yeah. Um, maybe. I mean, there we also got who knows. We also got a Lost Orson Welles movie come at, right back thanks to Netflix. So. Really. Yep. Until nice. it's called the other side of the wind. Right of the wind. It's basically his version of something like a Fellini film, film where it's a director, a director making an allegory for being a film director, which your mileage on that may vary. <laughs> like, what's I it called? The other side of the wind. Nice. Got, you know what's funny is it also stars a famous, famous film director, John Huston, the guy who made classes like I don't know, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, The Maltese Falcon, and a lot of other greats. You know, we got. My next uh, bullet point for my notes is uh, I I want to hear what you think about this, Jack. Is the searching animated bear? Oh, I forgot about. Honestly, it's been a while since I've watched it. This I, it was definitely interesting in a weird touch. I I, I thought it was a very weird touch. No, no, I, it was very unique to say the least. Yep. Very intention a, a very intentional detail. And uh, I wanted to, I mean, what about the cast? The cast is one of the things that intrigues me about this, because, I mean, the main actress, she's only been in two films, both both of which were directed by Vim Vendors. She had a first appearance in uh, Wings of Desire, actually, is a uh, film from 1987, the one I mentioned with the shot of the angel. Well, she was actually playing, a, I believe, a circus dancer, and she actually did, she not only did her own stunts for the movie, for the movie but she also received eight weeks of training beforehand, so that way she could provide for the role. Wow. Commitment. Commitment. Well, you, you can tell you can tell that this is uh that English is her second language. Yeah. Yeah, I still think she gives one of the stronger performances in the movie. No, most or not mostly when she's not given dialogue though, just sometimes yeah. <laughs> her, her face can say more than a than a entire paragraph. I agree. And like you there are a few of her li there are a few of her lines that were kinda um kinda cheesy. I really liked Matt Sam Neal in this a lot. Yeah, they were they were good. Probably the most level-headed person in the entire film. Like one is trying to keep move too hard to keep moving. One of the one is one person is also trying to stay work hard in the past. That would be uh Solvik Martin's character and uh William Hurts respectively. And uh, of course, um, since he passed away a few weeks ago, I would I'd feel remiss if I didn't mention uh the great Max von Sydow. He's really good in this. Yes, he is. I I miss him. Like I know we all know him for for appearing on like big blockbuster stuff like Star Wars. We're in recently Star Wars, he was in Ming the Merciless and Flash Gordon, which we are definitely talking about. I mean, mark my words. <laughs> but the guy really was a very solid, subtle actor. And like you look at him and just stuff like the Seventh Seal, I'm like, yeah, this guy left a lot, a, a great legacy behind, and it's gonna, it's gonna be sad without him. He lived a good life, though. What What is William Hurt doing in the uh, MCU films? Who does he play? Thunderbolt Ross, the, the general from the Incredible Hulk film. In the comics, he's the Red Hulk, which basically, or in basically his, or in his version of Venom, Venom or one of the evil doppelganger supervillain types. Yes, I'm I'm familiar I'm with Red they Hulk. Pulled the trigger on Red Hulk already because that would be such a cool visual, and you know they get a lot out of the one of those two fights. But uh, Marvel's been odd about its treatment of the Hulk, and I'd say for the worse. Yeah, are you gonna Maybe see Black sure. Widow? Maybe. I, I, I it's so an oath. Man, no, I'm for so me, tired. dog. I, once Guardians Three comes out, I'm hopping the train. I'm uh, yeah. I'm done, man. Until you Guardians Three will be my last one. Maybe, maybe Doctor Strange Two if they get Sam Raimi for this, but I'm having. I doubt it. Yeah. I mean, then again, Kevin Feige did work with Sam Raimi on Spider-Man Three, so it's not entirely unlikely, but I don't see it happening, especially considering how Raimi does not seem like a guy who would be bossed around by these types. Anyway. 
I actually don't mind the length of this at all, at all like, until, like, the, or, like, the tail end of the second half. Yeah. The second half, I feel like, could have been truncated into, I think, t- I think, like, an hour 30, maybe. Like, I think, I mean, probably the Jap, I haven't seen the Japanese cut, but that seems like probably the ideal length for this. Like, it gets How, out how long is it? Three hours and 59 minutes. Yeah, that seems about right. Like, maybe just a cut a couple minutes. I do like the ideas it raises, though, about VR. Or in VR and the way, or in the way it can mess with people's realities. But not yes, in, I, I do like that. Yeah, and technology in, a, in general. But not in a pre, not in a preachy. This is inherently dangerous, but but more hey, it's only dangerous because we make it dangerous. Exactly. So I think that's actually a new. Like it reminds me of there's an old movie from uh, 1983 with uh, Christopher Walken and Natalie Wood called uh, Brainstorm that touches on the same idea, the idea that we can use virtual realities to re- relive our memory, or memories, and tr- maybe see into the future. Future, it's it sounds cheesy for its time, but it's surprisingly aged well. Well, like there's one scene in particular that I remember. Uh, it's an exchange between. It's not. It doesn't actually deal with the technology too much, but it's just him showing or in her remember or uh, Natalie Wood's character her memory, and just there's a similar line. It's me. And like, what's that? It's me. That's the exchange. I think that's entire. That's better than most entire science fiction films from that era. I think it sounds like a nice dialogue. Like it's actually fairly easy to find, although it's a movie I would love to see in a theater because uh, it was directed by the only films directed by one Douglas Trumbull. Hmm. Yep. You recognize that name, or? I do not. He is the special effects pi- pioneer behind Blade Runner, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Star Trek The Motion Picture, and a lot of other big movies. Wow. He also made Silent Running, which is, one, which is actually one of my favorite 70s sci-fi flicks. Nice. Yep. The guy is a legend, and deservedly so. Yep. And actually a fairly interesting director, because you know, Silent Running is de- very different from its time. It's a lot more peaceful, it's a lot more mel- or mellow, but it still has big ideas. It was in Brainstorm, is a movie that it's, it reminds me less of something like, what's a dated science fiction? That isn't Zardoz. <laughs> less like Things to Come, and more like something like War Games, which makes sense because it came out the same year. Alright, so you're, you're in that. This is a premise you can imagine going so wrong and getting and aging t- terribly for its time. Time, but no, they make er- the right choices where other filmmakers would probably wouldn't. Yeah, I want to point out a technical issue that really stuck out to me and kind of took me out of this film uh, the sure. first time I saw it. Um, but there are some ADR issues. You mean like the narration, or I'm trying to remember. No, the, like the dialogue. Yeah. Well, t- where, where to me it was pretty noticeable. I mean, they shot in a lot of different countries with actor with uh, some actors who didn't even who are not whose English is not their native language. So I'm a little forgiving. Yeah, yeah. Considering how I have seen much worse dubbing. Have you oh. seen an, have, have you seen a giallo film, one of the Italian horror movies from the '70s? I have not. They have this process where, or back then, I don't know if it's changed now. Now it probably I have to imagine it has where they have every sp- actor speak in their native language and they just dub it all in post. Hmm. That so- sounds like a nightmare to dub, and if you watch just a few minutes from the original Suspiria, you can see why. And it wasn't just horror movies either, they did this for a lot of different genres, like westerns they did too. They bring it up in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood too, like near, near the end of that, which I'm like, hey, that's a detail. That's a little movie nerd detail that I kind of appreciated. I I just rewatched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. What do you think of... On the bit on the rewatch, how did it fare up? It, I, I honestly liked it better on the rewatch. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a movie that I can see putting on a lot when, over the time, or in time. Like if I'm ever sad, like okay, just it's like putting on an old CD where you remember from, from the past. It's just those song, like those songs bring you back. Like oh yeah, I feel good now. Yeah, I could, I could totally see that. Yeah. I, I like the structure of this movie. Or in this movie, but there's only two ways I see this working. You either do the Kill Bill route, where you divide it up into two movie, or in movies, and maybe have the fu- something like the full bloody affair cut, where or where it's really just for hardcore fans' interests only, or you or you watch it as or as one whole thing, like Once Upon a Time in America. Yeah, I don't see it working any other way. Like trunky, when you either watch it separately or you do, or do it as the whole, or you know the whole shebang. You don't cut it down or in down. Watching it in two halves, like on the two CDs that, uh, DVDs. yeah, the, the, the Did two. Did you watch it all in one night? The first time, no. I watched the first half and then the second half. 
Yeah, um, I kind of wish I did that because maybe that would have made me a little less impatient during the second half. Yeah. I stayed up till 1 a.m. watching that <laughs> because I, I commit to what I do for this podcast, which is Same. why I only now started doing basic entry-level research. <laughs> <laughs> I actually re- rewatched this film last night also. Any, were there anything that stuck out to you on the second time around? It made me like the first half even more and yeah. dislike the second half just a little bit more. Yeah. So a little, or so it's a little better and a little worse. Sometimes yeah. That yeah. That you know what's funny? I bring up Vin Vendors. He, his motif is the whole road trip, trip thing, but not in a in a road tri- in a comedy kind of in a way. Like let's go on a road trip, man. More more like the way a journey. Or a journey can have an effect on some one like Paris, Texas's road movie, Wings of Desire. Not really, really. Um, the American Friend is and a lot of his other films are. The, he called when he was making this. He described this as the ultimate road movie, and I think the film was even sold on that tagline. And um, it's a very lofty claim to make, and I think he actually lives up to it. Which, hey, kudos, man. Yeah, I felt like I was at um all of those locations. Like they they they, they do a great job of establishing the environment. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. And I love how distinct each part feel, feels too. It, like it doesn't blend into the other. Like the scenes in Tokyo are shot differently than the scenes in, in uh, Australia. The scenes in uh, Bro- or in Berlin are shot differently than the scenes in France. Some of the, I think some of the oh, best shots. Go all the way. I think some of the best shots came from the scenes of Tokyo. Oh God, it's glor- Tokyo is just a lovely city. city yeah. So I think, I mean, that's kind of let's see that is gift wrapped to you if you're going to be shooting a movie there. Exactly. For sorry, for that sounded a little insensitive. No, you're fine. Yep. Anyway, I think ultimately this is a movie that I think I'm gonna be look, looking back a lot on when I, I watch because, but not often. I like I want to save it or savor it each time I watch it because. Yeah, it would. It's like, not gonna be like a one I frequently rewatch. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but one that I might keep on just in case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the Wait, Godfather. Like, yeah, or Apocalypse Now, which exactly? I'd love to see a whole document, a making of documentary about this. Right. Oh yeah, I'm because sure they. This, I imagine it must be fascinating. I think Sam Neill did this before Jurassic Park. If I'm not, yeah, wait, this was '91. That was '93. That makes sense. He actually did a lot, quite a bit of interesting work before this. He was, he was in one of the Omen sequels, which is both better and worse than you'd expect. <laughs> He plays the devil who plays the pre- who's or who conned his way into being the president. Gee, I wonder how that's relevant now. Very <laughs> 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 tacky political joke. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, what's your shot? Um, there's one one fun fact I noticed on the second watch: the song that they sing at the end, the one that Claire sings in Australia. That song appears twice throughout the film. Really? Is is not prior song? to their? Um, I'm not sure. Uh, but it appears t- twice um, prior to them singing it as an ensemble. Ah, uh, yes, I believe that's what we call a uh, motif. Yes, Possibly I think it is on the soundtrack. I haven't listened to it in an entirety because I... I'm back home and I left it in Savannah. Oof. Yeah. You glad to be back home, or? Um, I'm ready to be back in Savannah. <laughs> Same, and I've been back home longer, honestly. Yeah, you have. Yeah. Um, but you know, it was nice to be home. Um, it was yeah. necessary. I'm just ready to be back in college. Yeah, I I can't wait to see people again, and I hope this virus situation blows over soon. And I know uh, remind one little propaganda PSA reminder, guys, stay home. <laughs> yes. Let's please. just get this. I want to get this over with. We all want to get this over with. And the quickest way to do that is just staying home and doing all the other stuff. And that's been repeated at nauseum. That's probably gonna horribly date this episode. <laughs> like imagine in a good way 10 years ago like what where you're like what are, what are they talking about and then they or, and then i clicked down on google like oh oh that's why that happened yeah that was that was an interesting time this will be read in textbooks though oh god i can't imagine it happening any other way or e-textbooks yep or e-textbooks what if, if print books are still a thing <laughs> which i doubt they will be I mean textbooks I mean, at least. I mean, pro- I mean, we'll have to just for the sake of historical preservation and so. And it's like I doubt they'll we'll ever stop keeping physical records of things or anything because it's too risky. Because a digital font, 
or in a physical thing, that takes time to destroy. Right? Yeah. It's still, right? As fragile as it can be, it can still right, be held. A digital file can literally be erased in like that, in like less than a second. I don't trust digital files. I'm a, a very... Why do you think Animal I still want erase? Why do you think Same. Still yeah. Erase? And vinyl. Yep. I wonder if we should talk about Contagion on the podcast. Let's start a mm. one. Because it's gotten a shockingly high, uh, well, not that shocking contextually, only uh, resurgence. I watched it when it came out, and I thought it was pretty good. I I was 11. I don't think I had any interest in it at the time, but now I'm, I couldn't. I'm like, okay, I have to see how this is. Because the apparently the origin of the virus in that movie is pretty similar to what happened in real life. Like, yeah, like a bat and a pig. Oh god! I remember. Like, it all goes back to the bat and the pig. <laughs> anyway, back to the movie at hand. Back to the movie. I also argue, or an argue, uh, maybe making this a big event movie was not the wisest idea. I mean, I get why because you spent a lot of. Because twenty three million in nineteen ninety one is still a lot. Yeah. Nineteen ninety one. This is the first time a movie's budget cracks a hundred million. That is a first time, or in time. Oh wow! Cut. Well, and that movie with the uh, Terminator Two, which makes. Yeah, I love Cameron and his big, earning big expensive toys. I love James Cameron. This film, I I didn't feel the sense of like impending doom of that the world's gonna end. I, I think that. I think that or the title is more of an expression like "I love you until the end of the," world, which I think is actually the name of the Nick Cave song on this. Which is one of the best songs on the soundtrack. I, I really love the Lou Reed one, What's Good. That really gives... That's the only one that I think actually has an apocalyptic feel to it. Yeah, yeah. I can see that. But I, I disagree. I think there, um, he intended to, for there to be, like, a um, sense of, like, the world's going to end with the satellite. Yeah. Um, oh, right. And, like, that Unabomber guy. Oh, right. I forgot. There, maybe, I just think... When I think of this movie, I think of... It's fitting that this is, he called this the ultimate road movie, because I think the best way I can describe it is their journey is better than the destination. Ah, uh, yes. That's... You remember the trip. You don't remember where it goes entirely. Although I do say, I think or if this were just cut down a little more, the ending would have hit a little harder. Yeah, yeah. Because, because it does cut, because the ending is a little bit, of, not the ending itself, but more like the second, the latter half of the second half is a bit of an endurance test. It is, it is. But I still, I don't think it makes this a bad film. I don't even really think it's no, different. at least not as much as you do. Because yeah, I, I'd still say this is about as good, probably the best movie we've talked about so far in the podcast. Really? So far, so far, I mean, better than Under the Silver Lake. It's a toss-up between that and Under the Silver Lake. Okay. Yep. Yeah. I I I would put it second behind Under the Silver Lake. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, I get no, yeah, I don't mean I don't mean to discredit this film too much, but oh, like, because no. oh, no. I I very much love this film. I'm, I'm saying it I'm, glad, it. I'm glad we could discover it. Which yeah, absolutely. I oh hey, we found a note I haven't gotten to. This is a this movie is kind of why I started the po the podcast because I wanted to just, not only I wanted to show people stuff like this, but I wanted to make discoveries of my own. Exactly. This I'm glad to be a part of this. Or this is a movie that I, it's been on my watch list for a while, but I or I just couldn't watch it because well. It really was, again, this thing was harder to find than gold dust. <laughs> Thank God. Thanks to, yeah, thanks to Criterion. We're sponsored by That is the second time, the second time <laughs> we've made that joke in the uh, uh, thing about that, there's an interesting story, is uh, they actually did the 4K restoration back in 2014 and did a few screenings of it at the time. God, I wish this... I could be a fly on the wall during those, because that must have been gorgeous to watch in a theater. Oh, I could not imagine. Here's the the thing, theater they, experience changes everything. Oh yeah, that they have an intermission, which may, might make the uh, the length of the second half a little more endurable. Uh, I can see that. Like I remember, I actually got to see Lords of Arabia in theaters uh, back back in September, and wow, that is a movie that you either see it big or you don't see it at all. And all because Damn. you need to, it needs to have that sense of scope for it to land as much as it does. Yeah, I have not I seen it, but I would love to see it. Um, yeah, in theaters. They even include the. I bring it up because they also have an intermission in it. Oh, nice. I think they did the same thing when I saw two thousand one in IMAX. Which, wow, that was a trip. Does that have a formal intermission, like in theaters? Oh uh, yeah, it does. Nice. I think it might be included on the Blu-ray, but I'd have to check that. Out. We're gonna check that out to be sure. Yeah, yeah. I miss intermissions, you know. I can't say that uh, I lived through them. I mean, yeah, neither neither can I, but I kind of want because I kind of want them to make a comeback. Like I'd like to see a lot of things make a comeback. 
Uh, yeah, because I, I like to see like, longer movies, like bigger stories. Yeah, and not just like Endgame longer, where it feels overstuffed and there's th things happening every every thirty seconds, but more le longer to, as a sense of maturity. Yes, exactly. Like this film does. Yeah, because I think I think length can be long movies can be done well. Well, other times, other times we get situations like Heaven's Gate, where they are kind of unwieldy, unwieldy productions. Like that's the movie that, if I'm not mistaken, that killed the New Hollywood era. That and one of the heart, one for the heart, the Francis Ford Coppola musical, which is interesting, but I'm not sure if we're ever going to talk about it on the podcast. Speaking of my... another, speaking of another long film that I would have loved to see in theaters, but I did not get a chance to, um, was I just watched Stalker for the first time. Tarkovsky. Yes. Nice. What'd you think? It blew my mind. Yeah. Which so oh, beautiful. Yeah, it is. I love. I mean, this really reminds me of Tarkovsky in that the way he's on the films is like captured. He's like sculpt. I believe sculpting with time. I'm actually. I actually bought that book as soon as I finished the movie, really? and I'm reading What's it now. Time? No, sculpting in time. Oh, wait, wait. That's the name of it. Yeah, that's his uh, film theory slash autobiography, which I highly uh, recommend. The guy. The guy is so well spoken too. That's why. My I, I exactly. I like, yeah. Also, Chandler. If you love soccer and you like this, you have to watch the original Solaris. Oh and yes, it's it's definitely on my watch list. Right up, right up your alley. I'm I'm, I'm gonna go through all of Tarkovsky's films. Um, like I soon. I made myself a, a little watching project this month, actually. I, oh really? Yep, I made I made a big checklist of stuff on my watch list that I wanted to get or knocked off, and uh, I amassed sixty five films. Wow. I've this only month? made through seven. Yep. Nice. I've only made it through seven so far, and uh, what, some of it is I want to get through some Kurosawa stuff. I want to watch all the Lone Wolf and Cub movies. Now that I have the Criterion channel, I got finally want to watch Adaptation, which is probably, I think, the only Charlie Kaufman film I haven't seen yet. That and, Oh, wait, that and Synecdoche in New York. Mm, we should do that on the podcast. I haven't Synecdoche seen it either. New York? Oh, yeah. yeah. Totally. I'd, I'd be down for that any day. Like I remember the structure of it being interesting. I just watched uh, Kaufman's... Um, one of his speech from the BAFTAs, and it's really, really motivational. Yeah, I'll send you a link. Oh, not perfect. I might put, I might put that in. I'll link it to this episode. Anyway, I mentioned something at the top of the show, show, and it looks like we're wrapping up here, so I might as well bring it up. I have a bit of a special announcement to make on my end. Really? And people who know me know that I draw a lot. Well, oh so, yes. Uh, recently, I finally got wearing paid to do this, and I'm doing 20 illustrations for a horror anthology book. Paid and credited on the front and back cover. That's badass. Thanks, man. It's called uh, Tales Under the Blood Moon, an anthology of the damned to startle the imagination. That Tales sounds so you. I mean, I, I, bear in mind, I did not write the stories. There's a buddy of mine on Twitter. Or on Twitter. I will definitely put an Amazon pre-order link in the, in the description for this episode. Or so if you want to look into it, we will have cop or both physical and digital copies out by uh, June 16th. Nice. Nice. So, yeah. Exciting things are happening all, all around. Anyway, to, that's good to hear. To the movie, what would you give this like out of ten? Honestly, I'd give it a nine out of ten. It, I go back and forth between a nine and a perfect ten because it's it's a movie that I think just I like viewing it on the whole, or rather as an individual peep, or moment by moment. But I do, there are certain scenes I do really like, like the, oh the yes, opening twenty minutes. It's just it's peaceful. It's quiet. It's quiet until the car crash up. That kind of somber because honestly, you know, it's actually something weird about this that I just didn't think about until now. This what movie, this movie's story has two inciting incidents, if you think about the it the car crash and the then the car crash and when she meets William Hurt. Okay, meets... yeah, yeah, yeah. I like actually, you know, I like okay, there. Uh, this episode might go on longer than I thought, actually, because yeah. I thought I'm like, huh, we covered all the bases in a lot short time. Oh, wait, there's that other thing I forgot to talk about. Anyway, I like how much of a kind of contrast that her character is to, to uh, and that one, or one can't stop moving forward and is kind of stuck in the past. Although that becomes a little more self-evident later on in the film. It is a nice contrast. I agree. Yep. It, I like her character overall. Yep. Just like the, uh, yep. it's, it's a, kind of before the manic pixie flower girl. Dream girl. Here's the thing. Yeah, yeah. That character, but with an actual sense of agency and like that she has a life outside of it. Or the character. And a good sense of self. Yeah. 
the thing about world building written in film is that it's not just enough to make an interesting world. It has to feel or you feel like there's stuff going on outside of the frame. That's why stuff like Buck Buckaroo Banzai and Blade Runner work. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, it's the kind of it's not it's like the little stories they tell tell. It's like maybe, hey, this is the this watch. Let's say I have a watch or a watch, and I have a story behind that watch that can help flesh out. The- well, it gives me a sense of life, or even something like a snake from New York, like, oh, I thought you were dead. Like, <laughs> when everyone keeps telling Snake Plissken that, which I'm not sure, I'm debating having Escape from New York on this podcast, but, because on the one hand, it's great, and I'd love to talk about it, on the other hand, is it weird enough? It's up to you. You're you're the boss man. <laughs> I mean, I kind of wanted to be a meritocracy here. You're, yeah, yeah. If I feel like we... Have, and by the way, this is an extension of, or into the listeners, too. If you ever have an ex- a movie you want to talk about on the podcast, feel free to suggest it. Totally. We are open, open to basically anything. Sindochi, New York. I would Sinecti like. I would. Li- is it Sindochi? Sindochi. Okay. Yeah. It. It's a. It's a hard title to say. It's, yeah. That I would love to cover. Oh, uh, other than that, I feel like we've. Uh, I've done a good. Like we've done a good job of. Uh, like oh, either I. I suggesting things, and then we do it. Like uh, we're doing Fear and Loathing. Coming up yes. uh, later on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Next week, I believe. This film. Doing, you know, it's funny. Fear and Loathing will be, uh, I believe, in May or June. But next, what we're going to be talking, I think we're going to be talking about a really, really interesting film. And we're also going to have a second thing for the show. We will be discuss next episode, we will be discussing one of Peter Jackson's early films. Speaking of, or in very long epics. Right. Meet the Feebles. Ah, uh, yes. And basically, in other words, imagine the Happy Time murders if it was fully realized. Oh my gosh. And actually delivered on its promise of being provocative, or provocative and deranged. Because, uh, it's an interesting watch, and, uh, I can't wait to talk about it with our guest. So then, this, is, this has been Warped Celluloid with your hosts, Jack Rourke and... Chandler Williams. Far out. Peace. See ya. Peace.